The loss rate of Greenland ice or even Arctic ice, it averages uh, today about 15,000 tons per second of net loss throughout the year. That's around the clock. That's equivalent with almost the flow of the Mississippi River. It's 200 times the flow of the Thames River in London, round the clock. Another way to think about the loss rate from Greenland of ice, if you divided that freshwater among all of the world's seven and a half billion people, each person would get a bathtub of water every day around the year. And so it's kind of like a slow-moving catastrophe. A warm welcome to the podcast Climate Thinkers, where you will hear the world's leading climate scientists talk about their areas of expertise. And the person who will guide you through those talks, that's me, Peter Alestig, and I'm a climate reporter at the Swedish national daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. Now, many people, of course, have opinions about climate change, but the idea with this podcast is to let the people who actually know how the climate is changing talk about that and about what consequences climate change has. Basically, we want to listen to the scientists. In today's episode, we'll meet Jason Box, one of the world's foremost researchers on the Greenland ice sheet. He has made over 30 expeditions to Greenland and spent a total of over one year on the ice, probably more than any other now active researcher. And his picture is gloomy. The Greenland ice sheet is dying. On a yearly basis, hundreds of billions of tons of ice disappear from the island. The ice is melting now while you listen to this podcast on an average with 8,600 kilograms of ice every second. Or, as Jason Box puts it, the ice melts with the equivalent of one bathtub of water for every person on Earth every day. And this is much faster than the climate models predict. So what is it that the models are missing? And what does the melt mean for the world? These are questions that Jason Box struggles to answer and to some extent actually has succeeded to do. In this interview, we'll hear about some of the groundbreaking discoveries he contributed to, like the effects of dark snow on the ice sheet, or discoveries of how microorganisms contribute to the melt. But we start with Jason Box taking us to Greenland and describing what it's like to work on one of the world's most inaccessible places. Greenland on the inland ice, it can be like landing on the moon. You know, white, <laughs> silent. Sometimes the wind isn't blowing and the, the silence can be amazing. Just being in a wild environment can be really profound experience to have a, some more risk in a, of, of the cold or even ice bears. That can kind of rewire our brains back to the way that I think we used to live not that many generations ago. We were more confronted with nature, the challenge of nature, and, and now we're isolated from nature. So I enjoy the opportunity to rewild myself. What is it that makes Greenland so important? Greenland is among the most sensitive reactors and indicators to abrupt climate change that we have. So we have only to go there and lay out some recording devices and then the ice tells its own story. And that story is of a, a more sensitive response than what we appreciated even a few years and decades ago. 
And just lately, there's come out several alarming reports about what is going on on Greenland. Could you tell us what is the latest knowledge that we have? The reports that have rang alarm bells, I think they've been there for a long time. What's interesting is that the public is starting to become more part of this conversation. The reporting about the risks of loss of land ice, they've been around for some decades. But yes, the science is getting sharper. I think the, the latest kind of thinking is more about the interaction of different elements of the climate system. For example, rainfall is increasing. You think about the Arctic as a place of, of snowfall, but as the climate warms, there's an increasing fraction of the precipitation that falls as rain. And so the rain can do quite a lot of damage to the snow. And just on the other side of that threshold, below the, the freezing point, instead of rain, then it's snow. And so the snow piles up. If once you cross that threshold of zero degrees, you know, then it's rain. I met Jason Box at the Geological Surveys of Denmark and Greenland, or GEUS as the institute is abbreviated, in Copenhagen. And Jason Box is American from Colorado, but he has been working here in Copenhagen since 2013. He's kind of like the main character in the blockbuster Day After Tomorrow, a climate scientist who loves to get out into the inaccessible wilderness of Greenland and measure what's actually happening to the ice sheet, but is also frustrated that the world's politicians don't seem to be doing enough to deal with the climate threat. One area for which Jason Box has received a lot of attention is the studies of what he calls dark snow. For a long time, climate research has shown that Greenland's ice sheet is getting darker and losing its reflective property. This means that a lot more solar energy stays on Earth instead of being reflected out into space. And this in turn accelerates the melting of the ice sheet. And Jason Box has found out what is causing this darkening of the ice sheet. And much of it began when his home state of Colorado was tormented by devastating forest fires, something that would lead to not just one, but two crucial discoveries. When my home state of Colorado in the U.S. was having record fires in 2012, that's when the light bulb went off in my head about um, dark snow. So we chased the, the smoke to Greenland and North America was record warm. That heat drifted over Greenland, uh, some smoke along with it. We, we did find dark particles and so that was part of the record melt story in 2012. It showed the connection of North America with Greenland and that was this reminder that even though we focus on Greenland, uh, everything is connected. And so the fires in North America are, are connected with changes on Greenland. In that, following the smoke and listening to what our measurements were telling us, we took a turn and because we realized that the surface of the ice is a microbial environment. So there's life <laughs> on this uh, ice sheet and the microbes darken the surface also. And so the story of melt down low on the ice cap, we got pulled over into becoming microbiologists and start working with microbiologists and learning that the life on ice is responding also to this extra liquid water from more melts. 
extra heat. And there's some ideas if pollution might be fertilizing the microbes. Uh, so now a whole branch of science is moving in that direction to answer those questions. So basically what we're talking about is the ice fermenting. Is the, that a way the ice it? is alive and it's not just white or gray, it has color, there's chlorophyll. So we're now using satellites to study the color of ice. And we have some really useful instrumentation taking photos of the ice from space that we can map the chlorophyll on the surface of the ice and that, that's part of the story. It's just one of these other X factors that we keep finding and, and so over my career it's just been a succession of more layers of complexity and, and more very you know fascinating pieces of the puzzle but you know we we just keep finding more sensitivities uh, more complexity so my perspective now kind of almost 30 years later is that this is a more sensitive system the climate system as a whole is more sensitive than we thought. Ash from forest fires, volcanoes, and soot from the burning of fossil fuels and other industrial processes all settle on the Greenland ice and make it darker. And this phenomenon has also been observed on, for example, New Zealand's glaciers in connection with the fires in Australia last winter. And during the summer of 2012, this, together with extreme temperatures, caused an unprecedented mass melting in Greenland. And climate models often miss many of these complexities or sensitivities, according to Jason Box, like dark snow, the damage rain does, or how algae multiply. Now, as you might have heard, not everyone agrees, though, that the melting of the Arctic ice is necessarily a bad thing. It has also led to speculations that deposits of rare earth minerals may be exposed under the Greenland ice sheet, or even that new areas may become available for oil drilling. And this, together with the geographic location of Greenland, has led to something that could be called a global race to the Arctics. The Arctic is becoming more relevant because of less sea ice and potentially or really opening up more shipping lanes. The reality is that that environment still is lacking in infrastructure seaports, emergency services, search and rescue. Because of the lacking emergency and basic infrastructure in the Arctic, it, it's going to be a long time before it's really a safe place to operate. And then there's the complexity of the ice is drifting around. It, it's not a given that you can just now take a ship easily. At the same time, with that happening though, the increased shipping and so forth, it kind of scares you as well, a little bit, if I got you correct. Well, it, it sounds to me like business as usual. Like, oh, let's keep on sending ships around the world, increasing the flow of products. Um, because we have a, a sustainability problem on Earth that right now we're using more than one worlds of resources. It's like more than one and a half worlds that we need now to satisfy this pattern of development. So just expanding into the Arctic seems to me is just like more of this kind of sleepwalking in denial of the sustainability challenge that uh, we should be more conservative about that and start to and mitigate climate change so that the society can remain 
in an organized state. I mean, that's really what's at risk here. If we really continue to ignore abrupt climate change at the levels that we have, we risk losing an organized civilization. I want to get into some of the consequences of this uh, ice melt on Greenland. For instance, there was a report recently coming out about huge amount of fresh water in the North Sea. What does that mean? What does that do to the system? Yeah, Greenland and Canadian land ice melting faster and faster, accelerating. It has been flooding the North Atlantic with fresh water. That system will react to that. We are seeing some strong storms recently that basic meteorology tells you that the oceanography of the North Atlantic must influence the storms to some degree. So I'm convinced that the increased freshwater into the North Atlantic must be influencing the storms that are affecting northwestern Europe. There's some basic meteorology that the storms should be stronger and they should be wetter. And when you look at the rainfall records, for example, we see more rainfall. We see heavier rainfall. So in my opinion, we, we see climate change when the rain is heavy. So basically, uh, you could say that the storms that we are experiencing are connected to the ice melt on Greenland. Yeah, everything is connected. The storms that we're feeling in Northern Europe these days, they bear some fingerprint of climate change, and that is it's a wetter atmosphere, it's a warmer atmosphere, it's a more extreme patterns, that is uh, longer periods of certain types of weather. So it's complicated, but there is an element of, of climate change in all weather systems now. So the melting of the Greenland ice sheet is having effects already here and now. Not least because the runoff of freshwater to the North Atlantic disturbs the ocean currents and impacts the weather systems, according to Jason Box. And another obvious effect is that sea levels are rising. But here's a paradox. The sea level does not rise next to Greenland. And the reason for that is that the Greenland ice sheet has an enormous mass and therefore also strong gravity. It basically pulls the world's oceans towards Greenland. And when the ice sheet melts, it's gra- which leads to a somewhat unexpected effect on sea level rise. When Greenland melts, most of the sea level rise is felt at the opposite side of the world. Actually, because of gravity, there's actually less gravity around Greenland when it, it melts. And, and so uh, Greenland is more responsible for kind of south, uh, southern ocean uh, and tropical sea level rise than it is uh, the, in the north. Uh, when Antarctica melts, we feel that more in the north. But looking forward, though, you've even said that we've already started processes that will bring us 21 meters of sea level rise. Yes. At this level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the equilibrium of land ice with the oceans gives us more than 20 meters of sea level rise. How fast could that happen? The response of of the land ice, it starts out slow and then it gets faster, faster. So... Greenland is responding faster than Antarctica because it's nine times smaller than Antarctica. So the last 20 years, Greenland has been twice the sea level contribution as compared to Antarctica. Antarctica bigger will take over. These sleeping giants are waking up 
Antarctica will take over. And because, okay, today the sea level rise is three and a half millimeters per year. I mean, that's every year. I mean, whether it's 12 years or 15 year doubling time is the difference of one or several meters of sea level rise by the end of century. So just what is that doubling time is the kind of the trillion euro question. And we don't know. We can't re reliably project sea level at end of century. What we can do is make probabilities and say, look, there's a 5% chance of two meters of sea level rise end of century. And we've fallen into a trap, actually, of focusing on probability because it's more important to consider impact. And risk is probability times impact. Um, the IPCC reports have spent a lot of time about probability, but we should be talking about impacts. When you consider the impact of two meters of sea level rise globally or 50% more in the tropics, you're talking about displacing hundreds of millions of people and the effects that that has on stability of global governance are extreme. And so we should consider impacts and then risk. So even if probability is low, but impact is high, risk is high. We should have a risk management strategy that reflects the high impact of sea level rise. How do we solve this problem? What can we do to prevent this from happening? Can we do anything to stop this process? I really like to consider what we can do to manage risk and to mitigate abrupt climate change. And what I have been calling the missing conversation is starting now, and it is carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere. You can see and read in the newspapers, most of the conversation is about reducing emissions, and we need to do that. But we must simultaneously begin developing technologies that remove carbon from the atmosphere. And it's nice to start with natural technologies that nature has developed over millions of years, that it would be you know, plants and trees, and we should plant trees, and, and that's one tactic. However, we cannot plant trees out of this problem. I calculated you need five times the area of Australia, new forests to offset carbon. We should plant trees, but we need uh, other uh, responses. And fortunately, I, I think that we have the technical capacity to begin carbon dioxide removal. And that's the project of the century, is removing carbon from the atmosphere, not only limiting emissions. There's also been uh, solutions uh, proposed within geoengineering, you know, these wild ideas, sending particles in the air, even painting mountains white, I've seen. What do you think about these ways of dealing with the issue? On the topic of geoengineering, climate altering technologies does involve some kind of science fiction-y ideas. And a lot of it is it's just ideas. These are ideas to intervene in abrupt climate change there's a list of approaches. They span from like painting the roof of your house white instead of dark color. I did that in my house in the US, you know, so I did my own micro climate altering technologies to save my summertime uh, cooling bills. All the way up to, yes, the science fiction-y ideas of solar radiation modification. At the extreme end, we're talking about limiting the amount of sunlight that reaches the Earth's surface because that has a cooling effect. Like any solution, it's not perfect, it still does not solve the issue of too much carbon going into the oceans. 
carbonic acid is acidifying the oceans. So solar radiation modification is being contemplated as a potential short-term emergency kind of button if uh, climate warming really starts to go out of control. And it's been shown that, that solar radiation modification is relatively low cost and relatively well known, relatively fast response. However, the more that you look at these technologies, the more you, you realize, uh, well, let's go to the source of the problem first, limit emissions, but we're starting to realize as a species that we need to contemplate climate interventions, at, at least talk about them, at least make sense of it. And we're beginning to denoise this topic and make sense of it, get kind of the conspiracy stuff out of the way. And look, this is a technology just like... Um, burning fuel to heat one's home, you know, this, it's technology. Do you think that we will manage? That's the question, you know, can our species be smart enough? We know that our species uh, can react very well in survival mode. When our species' survival is directly threatened, we get very smart. And it just seems that we need to exhaust all of the other possibilities before we get smart. Winston Churchill said this. So I think there are some that says, you know, look, we need to do this, this, this. We kind of know what we need to do, and we need to somehow overcome the political fights and the misunderstanding that people that don't spend their full time studying these problems, I think they get pulled off in, in the wrong direction. I, we know enough about this risk to start to need to manage it. Jason Box, thank you very much for your time and um, good luck with Greenland. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from the Swedish national daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. Production is done by Clara Wallin, editing by Adam Svanell and Gunvor Frykolm is project manager. My name is Peter Alesig and when Climate Thinkers is back I will be in Norwich in England and meet Corinne Lequeré who among other things closely studied why emissions decreased so little in 2020 despite the fact that large parts of the world were in lockdown. What can the pandemic actually teach us about how we can achieve the sharp emission reductions that are needed and which measures are actually the most effective? Thank you for listening. Until then, bye.